You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Oregon is now locked in a battle with the federal government, suing the Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Marshal Service, alleging they've overstepped their powers in threatening, injuring, or arresting protesters with militarized units on the streets of Portland. Mayor Ted Wheeler said the actions of the federal troops are unconstitutional and he wants them to leave. Unmarked vehicles driving in the crowds, pulling people off the streets without any probable cause, as far as I can tell. And the people who are engaging in those activities aren't even willing to identify who they are and they don't wear insignia on their uniforms. That's a real threat to democracy because ultimately there's no accountability for that. But acting deputy secretary for the Department of Homeland Security... Ken Cuccinelli defended the actions of federal troops and explained a video circulating of a man being apprehended by federal troops and put into an unmarked vehicle. Well, they determined that was not the person who did the assault and released him. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig of Lowenstein Sandler. Do you remember another time in our history where there were cases of unidentified federal officers in camouflage throwing people into unmarked vans, taking them into custody, putting them in a jail cell, questioning them, and then releasing them without any record of their arrest. Absolutely not. And and there's so much about this that sticks out as being not just unusual, but extraordinary and potentially extraordinarily dangerous. So let's start with this. First of all, we don't have secret police here in the United States. I think that's one of the core theories that our democracy and our criminal justice system is built on. Um, I think what this really is is sort of performative law and order for some reason. There's obviously a political motive behind this whole song and dance, but it's really dangerous. And I can sort of tick through the ways. First of all, there's no such thing as federal police in the way that people normally think of police doing patrols. There are certainly our federal law enforcement agents, FBI being the most widely known, but DEA and ATF and on down the line, U.S. Marshals who are involved in this case, DHS, Homeland Security, but they do not ordinarily do what we would think of as street patrol, crowd control, that kind of thing, particularly if you're not dealing with federal property. The streets of Portland are not federal property. So let's start with that. Second of all, most law enforcement agencies require that unless you're talking about an officer who's working in an undercover setting, which these guys are not, at a minimum, the agency is identified on the uniforms, and frequently the name of the person is identified on the uniform. Same thing with our military. Look at it, even generals have their name on their breast pocket. So the fact that there's this level of secrecy about this is extraordinarily alarming and I think also potentially dangerous to citizenry and to law enforcement officers. To put this in context, for example, early Monday, Dozens of people were gathered at the federal building with shields and helmets and bats and hockey sticks, and the feds used tear gas and apparently shot projectiles at them. Are they within their rights to be defending the federal building? In the abstract sense, yes. A federal building is federal property, not necessarily everything around it, but sure. But the question is, is the level of force being used here justified by the situation. I mean, there's been videos that have gone viral that show these sort of mystery federal troopers using vastly excessive force on people who pose no threat whatsoever. And when you get into things like shooting tear gas and concussion grenades and flares and things like that, that is on the very aggressive 
side of enforcement. I mean, that is far more than just defending and protecting a property. The other thing that alarms me from a sort of criminal justice and former prosecutorial standpoint is process or lack of process here. I mean, people have a right to know who is arresting them and what they are being charged for. And that's for a couple reasons. One, anyone who's charged with a crime has the right to challenge the arrest, and you need to know who you're being arrested by. And two is, in order to make a federal arrest, you need probable cause. And there are a couple ways to establish probable cause. You can go to a judge, you can go to a grand jury, or if an officer sees a crime committed right in front of his eyes. Those are the three ways. But just randomly picking up protesters and throwing them into cars and then releasing them without charges is completely against the way our system works. The New York Times got a hold of a memo of the Department of Homeland Security that said that these people have not been trained in this crowd control. That lack of training is a serious concern because crowd control is not just something that an officer can intuit, that that you just sort of automatically know. It's not common sense. You, You need specialized training to learn how to manage a crowd without escalating that crowd, right? The the real job of a good police officer is de-escalation, taking the temperature down, not riling things up. And and if you watch what's happening, I think you can see that lack of training. I also want to point out another potential danger here, which is people need to know which officers are real. I mean, there is a federal crime of impersonating a law enforcement officer. I'm not suggesting these people are, but if someone wanted to, go down to the Army-Navy store, buy some surplus, and slap a police badge on there, who's going to know the difference? And the the last thing that I want to say that goes to the issue of danger is what law enforcement officers call deconfliction. Whenever you have law enforcement officials who may cross paths, and it happens all the time, maybe there's local police in an area where the federal FBI, let's say, is going to be doing a search warrant. You need to give everyone a heads up. Say, hey, we're going to be in your area. We're cops. Don't shoot. We're not breaking into a house. This is not a robbery. And so if you have law enforcement officers who are off the record and unidentifiable, that poses a risk to those officers and to other law enforcement officers in the area. Coming up next, Oregon's lawsuit. I've been talking to former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig about Oregon suing the U.S. over the detention of residents during anti-racism protests in Portland shortly after a judge ruled that journalists alleging local police had assaulted them could add federal agents to their own lawsuits. In the state's lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Marshal Service, the Attorney General alleges they've overstepped their powers in threatening, injuring, or arresting protesters. In its lawsuit, Oregon cited two incidents it says took place in the past week. A peaceful protester was allegedly struck in the head with an impact weapon and sustained severe injuries, and an unmarked minivan with undercover federal agents wearing generic green military fatigues allegedly forcibly detained a second protester who was later released. Ellie, tell us about the grounds of the lawsuit by the Oregon AG. Yeah, so there's several lawsuits here. But essentially, the essence of the the Oregon AG's lawsuit is that these secret police are unlawfully arresting and detaining people, meaning without probable cause, without proper due process and documentation. And again, that I mean, this is core Bill of Rights constitutional stuff that you are entitled to be advised of the charges against you. You are entitled to have counsel appointed. You are entitled to defend yourself. You are entitled to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. I mean, all of that is being violated. So that's the essence of the AG's lawsuit. There's also a separate lawsuit that's been filed by the ACLU complaining about restraints and limits 
um, and intimidation tactics being directed at the media and at other official observers from law enforcement or from other sort of governmental entities that are trying to figure out what's happening there. So, I, I, and the U.S. attorney, who is the chief federal prosecutor for, for the district, also has requested an investigation and assistance. So I think it's a good thing that a lot of different people coming from a lot of different levels of government and from outside government are raising flags here. Suppose the judge in, let's take the AG's lawsuit, suppose the judge issues a preliminary injunction against the feds. Who's going to enforce that? Right. Well, I think the answer is it would it would fall to either the AG or the individual whose rights were violated. But violating an injunction from a federal judge is, is very serious business. I mean, that could lead to contempt findings, which can be there is a criminal form of contempt. So if it gets to that point, then we're talking real lawlessness, but, but there, there could be real consequences for people who violate such an order. The president has said that he sent troops in because it was obvious that Oregon couldn't take care of its its own problems. When it comes to the president's power versus the power of city and state officials who've said, we don't want you here. In fact, the mayor said, please leave. Does the president have the authority to send troops in? The president does have fairly broad, not fairly, very broad authority to deploy federal troops. Now, look, there's an important distinction here. The president cannot deploy the military, and and it doesn't appear these people are military, even though they're dressed military style, cannot deploy the military to perform law enforcement functions. That's against the law. But the, the president can deploy the military to keep order, and he can deploy federal law enforcement to perform law enforcement functions. Really, um, very, very broadly. And, he, and while one way to do that is upon request from a governor, he doesn't need a request from a governor. I mean, think back to Little Rock, for example, with the Civil Rights Movement. The president sent in the National Guard against the wishes of segregationist governors. Um, so, look, there's a legitimate question here about whether the president should be doing this and whether it's necessary. I think it's clearly not necessary. I think it's largely for show. And like you said, the leaders of the area have asked the president not to send people in. But, but legally, he does have fairly broad discretion to deploy federal uh, agents. In this case, the federal response has been that we're protecting federal buildings and federal officers. So as long as they're, you know, within the building parameters, are they properly there? But once they go into the streets, does that then start to raise questions? I have no problem with defending and protecting federal buildings, federal property, federal assets. And, and there's an argument that a certain area, the sort of vicinage around the building is included in that. But if you're going to do that, do it right. Do it lawfully. Do it transparently. Do it the way that virtually all law enforcement functions in this country, which is, A, identify yourself, what agency you're representing, and, and preferably your name. Uh, B, only make arrests if you have established probable cause through a judge, through a grand jury, or through directly observing an obvious crime right in front of you. And then C, give people who you arrest their due process. They are entitled legally to be advised of the charges against them, to make appearance in court, to have counsel appointed, etc. So saying that, well, we're just here defending federal assets is fine, but it doesn't excuse anything in the world being done in order to, to achieve that. You, you still have to play by the rules in defending those federal uh, properties and assets. 
this might end before these lawsuits actually find their way through the courts. Is the Oregon AG also asking for damages? I, I don't see a request for monetary damages. I think that would be hard to prove on a statewide level that the AG represents. But I, look, I think individuals who have been wrongly detained, if they can show that, absolutely would have a potential lawsuit for damages against the federal government. I mean, if somebody can show their rights were violated, they were wrongly taken into custody, they were wrongly arrested, apprehended, there absolutely could be a a civil suit for monetary damages there. And we should also point out that local authorities are also doing criminal investigations into some of these incidents. For example, there was a lot of video of a former Navy civil engineer who was beaten with a baton and pepper sprayed. So those are also going on at the same time. Yeah, Yeah, look, criminal law needs to prevail here, I would say, um, in, in a couple of respects. First of all, if protesters are genuinely committing crimes, assaults, uh, destruction of property, then those crimes need to be investigated and prosecuted in accordance with the law and due process. But certainly, if these camouflaged federal troops or agents are committing crimes, are using unjustified levels of force, then they can be charged with assault as well. I mean, there's no immunity from criminal charges for police officers or law enforcement agents who use excessive force. There is this thing called qualified immunity, which has now become a controversial notion, which says that a federal law enforcement officer cannot be sued civilly for money damages in his personal capacity. But you absolutely are subject to potential criminal charges if you use excessive force or assault somebody um, without justification. Thanks, Ellie. That's former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig of Lowenstein-Sandler. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, the legal battle over the subpoenas for President Trump's financial records goes on. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. The Supreme Court has already ruled on the grand jury subpoena and congressional subpoenas for President Trump's financial records. But the legal battle is far from over. It's returned to the lower courts. The Supreme Court has cleared the way for the lower courts to move ahead in the clash over the grand jury subpoena. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance had asked the justices not to wait 25-plus days, as they normally do after issuing an opinion. The court had rejected Trump's claim of sweeping immunity while leaving open the possibility he could raise more specific objections in the lower courts. And Trump is doing just that. Joining me is Harold Krant, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. This seems to be moving fast. How fast compared to other cases? The Supreme Court typically waits 25 days or so to issue a mandate or issue an order to a lower court to resume jurisdiction over a case once it's been decided by the Supreme Court. Here, uh, the District Attorney of New York, Vance, decided to ask for the the case to be returned to New York more quickly than that in order to get the whole controversy of Trump's taxes before the court again to move the case along. And the Supreme Court agreed, uh, largely because uh, Trump's attorneys evidently acquiesced. But still, we're going to have at least one more round of litigation, at least in the New York federal court, uh, because uh, Trump's attorney has said that he's going to claim probably that this is a fishing expedition. 
it's in, it's the intent to harass um, the president, um, and that indeed the subpoena for taxes is too broad. So there will have to be a hearing on those claims probably at some point in August. It was surprising to me that Trump's lawyers didn't fight the speeding up of the case. They agreed to it, and that was a big part of why Justice Roberts let it go forward. If they're fighting this tooth and nail, why would they agree to move it along quicker? The question crossed my mind as well, and my only speculation is that the attorney did not want to tick off the Supreme Court anymore because it's a chance that this case in some form or other, whether a contempt or direct appeal, may find its way back to the Supreme Court a second time. This is the case involving the subpoena from the New York Grand Jury, Prosecutor Cyrus Vance's office. Remind us what the Supreme Court said about President Trump being in nearly the same situation as any other person with regard to that subpoena. So the, the, the court first held, and most importantly, that the president is not above the law, that the president does not have a complete immunity from civil process or from criminal process, for that matter, while he's in office. And that that's true with respect to a subpoena from a state investigatory agency, as it would be from a federal investigatory agency. But in so holding, the court did say that the president should have the opportunity to contest the subpoena on grounds, first of all, available to anybody else, such as the fact it's too broad, but also on the grounds that somehow the subpoena will interfere with the president's conduct of his uh, constitutional office of presidency. Um, in this case, uh, the Trump's attorney, Sekolo, has suggested that there may be some valid reasons for challenging subpoena. I mean, I think most of us think that they're frivolous. Um, but there may be one claim that has a bit of merit, which is the fact that they've looked for, I believe, eight years of tax returns. And if the grand jury is really focusing merely on the hush money paid to Stormy Daniels by Michael Cohn, which was the thesis, that's a one or two year process of looking at the taxes. It's not an eight year. But these are the kinds of issues that will be resolved relatively expeditiously by the court upon remand from the Supreme Court. That was the argument that I thought carried the most weight, that the scope of the subpoena was overbroad. And President Trump's attorney said that the DA just copied the congressional subpoenas. Do you think that's their strongest argument? I do think that the strongest argument is the question of scope of the subpoena. But we don't know exactly what the grand jury is investigating. If the grand jury is only investigating hush money, obviously that would be triggered with respect to the campaign because that's when evidently uh, President Trump paid this money and then tried to claim a deduction for it as a legitimate um, expense. But on the other hand, maybe the grand jury has investigated a pattern of these payments. Maybe the grand jury has investigated some other kind of financial impropriety with respect to the campaign and so needs to look at a couple more years of tax returns. But I do think it's questionable of where this eight year of tax returns came up, uh, they came up with, and that may not be directly linked to the investigation that they're undertaking. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. 
I've been talking to Harold Cranch, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law, about the Supreme Court clearing the lower courts to move ahead in a clash over a grand jury subpoena for President Trump's financial records. From the Manhattan District Attorney. Trump's attorneys want more information about the grand jury investigation. Grand jury investigations are supposed to be secret. Would the judge allow them to get more information? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, I think the argument by uh, Trump's attorney is that how do we know if this is a legitimate investigation and not for harassment unless we know what the focus of the investigation is. Uh, Now, there are some uh, alternatives here. And for instance, the Vance could give a overview of the investigation in camera, meaning in secret, to the presiding judge, and in that way satisfy the judge that this is not a frivolous or vexatious attempt to get information about the president. That's a possibility. Uh, so there is, it is extremely rare that someone would have the right to know what a grand jury is looking into, but there is a kind of kernel here formed by uh, by President Trump's lawyers that suggest that if, you know we need to have some baseline to hold that this investigation is not purely for harassment. And if that's true, then the question is, what will Vance be willing to say in public? Or will he be willing to tell the judge, again, in private, um, what the grand jury generally is looking into now? That remains to be seen. Trump's attorneys also indicated that they are going to raise the claim that there is a political motivation behind the subpoenas, a desire to harass the president. But this judge previously found the subpoena to be proper, and he asked them whether there were any new facts or different facts to suggest the investigation was in bad faith. Does it seem likely that the judge is just going to affirm his prior ruling? Yeah, the argument that this is purely a, a frivolous investigation on the on behalf of the New York authorities is already been raised. It's already been rejected. Um, and I think from what we know, just in terms of the payment to the hush money to Stormy Daniels, that itself suggests that there is a good faith basis for this investigation. And again, it might be broader. We simply don't know. I, I think the only claim really that that uh, Trump's attorney has that may have a little some merit is narrowing down the subpoena to show that there's at least some relevance or some connection between the years of tax material sought and the scope of the investigation. But that being said, we simply don't know how broad the investigation is right now, and there may be other things that are being swept within the sights of the prosecutors in New York. Trump's attorneys mentioned an argument that it would interfere with his constitutional duties. But didn't the Supreme Court take that argument away from the president by saying he should be treated as any other person would be? I think that the Supreme Court let a, a, a small, very narrow outlet show that if there's something not in general, that a, in general that an investigation would interfere with the president's conduct of his constitutional responsibilities, but there was something particular or unique about an investigation which would undermine or frustrate a president's ability to lead. There has been nothing suggested here whatsoever, and it's impossible to understand how it could, given that these, it's not, <laughs> the, this tax information is being held by the accountant. It causes no duties on Trump uh, at all. And indeed, Trump 
previously promised he would reveal the tax um, information to the public. He reneged on that. Um, but inst- but it's un- unbelievable to think that there could be a valid claim here that the release of the tax materials would frustrate the president's ability to lead the country. During a court hearing, the DA said that the longer Trump fights, the higher the chance that the statute of limitations will expire. Let's not let delay kill this case. Yeah, there is a statute of limitations here. It's a little bit unclear for which crimes because there are different statute of limitations. Um, and what that leads to the interesting question, though, is whether one a sitting president can be indicted. We've never had a sitting president be indicted before. The Department of Justice has come out on several prior occasions uh, in the wake of the Nixon investigation, the Clinton investigation, and said that one can that a sitting president cannot be indicted. Um, and it makes sense that if you're worried about a statute of limitation, you would at least the in, at least indict the president under seal. So we may be in stage because of this New York case into another constitutional moment. That is the question of whether a sitting president can, in fact, be indicted. Now, historically, we did see that a sitting vice president can be indicted when Spiro Agnew was subject to the criminal investigation um, uh, before he had to leave the White House. But in terms of a president, we've never seen that. And we may be that may be coming up well right before the election. Let me take you through a series. Suppose that the judge, Judge Marrero, says this subpoena is good. You can enforce the subpoena. You can comply with the subpoena to the accountants. Then President Trump appeals to the Second Circuit. But suppose the judge does not enjoin the execution of the subpoena while the Second Circuit's case is played out. Yeah, but then what would happen is President Trump's attorney would make an emergency motion in the Second Circuit to stay enforcement of the subpoena pending resolution of the appeal. My guess is that is exactly what the attorney would do. Uh, The Second Circuit would hold an emergency hearing on that motion and make a decision. Um, But I think that this is something that, given the context, both the Second Circuit as well as the lower court would decide expeditiously But it may end up going back to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court then would have to decide whether to decide this on a motion or decide this on another hearing. Um, My guess is there'll be distaste in the Supreme Court to have a full hearing on this for a second time because there won't be that many unique issues raised. Um, And so it's possible that on the eve of the election, there at least will be release of the taxes, but that doesn't mean anything because the information will be secretly before the grand jury, and it's, then it's up to the grand jury to decide whether to indict President Trump, indict his son, indict his accountants, or whomever else allegedly was part of this conspiracy uh, to commit tax fraud. Because if you're looking at the odds, it does seem like the judge who previously ruled the subpoena was proper in a 78-page opinion, and the Second Circuit, which previously ruled the subpoena was proper, that both those courts are going to affirm what they said before. It's very clear to me that the subpoena will be upheld, perhaps in shortened or truncated form, but it will be upheld by both 
the lower court and the Court of Appeals. And I think it'll actually be affirmed by the Supreme Court if it goes up there as well. The Supreme Court may even refuse to hear it. But the key question for those interested in the election is whether once those claims are resolved, and it will take a couple months to do that, does the grand jury have any time to then weigh the information with other information that's received to decide whether to issue an indictment of, again against Trump, against his family, against his accountants, whom, or whomever else was engaged in this alleged uh, tax fraud. Suppose that the grand jury has received the subpoena. They make an indictment of President Trump and perhaps some others. In a press conference, can the district attorney reveal some of the underpinnings of that indictment and say, after we got the tax returns, this is what we found? So the, the, the first of all, the information may be leaked. And I think that President Trump's uh, supporters are you know, have a have legitimacy in terms of being concerned that the taxes will be, be leaked. But aside from being leaked, uh, the prosecutor at a press conference could give a general information about what information backed at the grand jury's decision to indict, if indeed they are allowed to indict uh, a sitting president, uh, but they cannot give the details. And again, um, I think that's really don't know about this idea of indicting a sitting president. There is all this uh, research by the Justice Department saying we understand there's a problem because of the statute of limitations, um, but we just think it's somehow unseemly uh, to do that. So it's going to be not a simple issue at all. Well, my own view, I don't think you can prosecute. I totally think you have to put off the prosecution until after the president leaves office. I mean, in my view, obviously, they've they've tried it like in Israel and some other countries, um, which has been a mess. Uh, but I do think you can indict. I'm not the line I would draw. But, you know, you can argue both ways because there's very little evidence in the Constitution, of, you know, one way or the other. I mean, we know about impeachment, but we don't know about indictment. So, you know, the, the argument's pretty much up for grabs. Thanks, Harold. That's Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. The Supreme Court refused to fast-track the subpoenas from the House for President Trump's financial records, rejecting their request to return two cases to the appeals court level ahead of schedule. The court gave no explanation for its refusal, even though, as we've been discussing, Chief Justice John Roberts last week granted a similar request from Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.